This is the 63rd episode of the Sharp End Podcast. I'm actually the creator of this show. I'm in my sixth year producing this podcast. Six years. Well, almost six and a half now, actually. Anyway, this is the longest relationship I have ever been in. And let me tell you something. This journey has not been easy. It's emotionally difficult to produce these often traumatizing accidents. And it's a lot of time to get the interviews, edit the interviews, produce the show, interact on social media, market to potential sponsors, etc. You guys, I do this all for you and my guests. If you love my show, if you've learned something from the guests, if you hit the refresh button every first eagerly waiting for the next episode to drop, please consider supporting the Sharp End in some way. Buy a t-shirt or buy a tote. Become a Patreon. Donate on Buy Me a Coffee. Go to my website and donate on PayPal. Thank you to all of my listeners who have graciously donated already. I have had many guests tell me that better communication could have helped prevent their accident. So I was stoked when Rocky Talkie reached out to me to support the show. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers from Denver, Colorado. Me and my ski partner recently spent three days ski mountaineering up here in Alaska in single digit temps. And by the end of the trip, my battery was only down to 71%. These radios are lightweight, waterproof, durable, and the most cost-efficient radio on the market right now. If you need a radio for your backcountry use, or the radio that you have isn't really doing it for you anymore, check these out. Rocky Talkie wants to hook you up with a 10% discount to keep you safe in the backcountry. Make sure to use code SHARPEND at rockytalkie.com to get 10% off your radios and to support this podcast. This show is not only supported by Rocky Talkie, but we are also supported by the American Alpine Club and Desert Mountain Medicine. Today we're going to hear from a woman named Jean. She is literally the most inspiring, brave, courageous, and strong woman I've really ever had the pleasure of talking with. This story takes place on Mount Whitney. I hope you enjoy. I'm Jean Munchraff, and um, I'm thrilled to be talking to all of your listeners as well as yourself today. And I live in Estes Park, Colorado, so in the Rocky Mountains. And I have kind of a, a varied background, uh, which includes a lot of adventure. I grew up skiing here in the Rockies, so that's a real passion of mine. Spent many years climbing and trekking and traveling around the world. So um, a lot of outdoor activity, it just doesn't seem to end. As far as a career goes, I spent 30 years of my career as a park ranger with the National Park Service. And uh, way back, I was a trekking guide in the Nepal Himalaya. And I also did a stint in Bhutan with the World Wildlife Fund. And I'm now officially retired. And I guess as far as what I do besides going out and having my own adventures is recently I authored a book, If I Live Until Morning, A True Story of Adventure, Tragedy, and Transformation. Um, part of that story is what we're going to be focusing on this evening. Oh, very cool. Could you say the, the, the title of the book one more time? Sure. It's If I Live Until Morning, A True Story of Adventure, Tragedy, and Transformation. If I live until morning. Okay, I feel like that's doing some foreshadowing for this talk. <laughs> yes, it is. And there's a reason for that title as part of my story, which I will also reveal. You know, my story starts out, I suspect, like a lot of your listeners' own stories, whether they're tragic or not, we all kind of aspire to our outdoor adventure dreams. And in my case, the one I'm going to focus on was... Um, 
my friend Ken and I had an aspiration to explore the jaw-dropping scenery in the Sierra Nevada mountains now mm-hmm. in the wintertime. And this is um, a long time ago. This is back in 1982. And our goal was to do this by skiing the John Muir Trail, um, over 200 and some miles of that. And we did and your this skis, on- yeah, you're, you're skiing in. So, but those skis are skinny skis in the 80s. Correct. Skinny skis and no metal edges, three pin bindings and boots that looked more like tennis shoes. You know, they were ankle high. So with a 35 pound pack, that was a, a true adventure in itself. Uh, but to kind of cut to the, the real meat of the story, basically, we had a fabulous ski trip. You know, there were challenges along the way, but it was wonderful. And then we reached the culminating point in our journey, which was to summit Mount Whitney, which is 14,505 feet. It's the highest peak in the continental United States. And what and, time of year was this? Uh, this was spring. So late spring, um, obviously still wintry at those elevations. And uh, we spent our last night, um, what we thought was our last night, I should clarify that, uh, in Crabtree Meadows. And then, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and then we ascended via the gullies on the western side of Mount Whitney. And it was an uneventful ascent. We were really fit by then. You know, we had spent several weeks out skiing and long days and uh, all of that. And uh, as we were ascending the mountain, maybe we're halfway up or so, we noticed that thunderheads were building in the distance with these misty trailers. And they were a long ways away, so we weren't particularly concerned. Uh, So we continued on and reached the large summit of Mount Whitney. And by the time we got to the top, we were actually in the clouds. And this is the beginning of a really... (laughs) epic journey, although we didn't know it at the time. And um, so it's starting to snow quite heavily in the clouds. And the electricity in the air, it was just supercharged. I mean, the Mm. shelter on the summit of Whitney has a metal roof and it was buzzing, you know. Whoa, you can hear that? Wow. Oh, oh yeah. And I looked at my partner and he looked at me and our hair was standing up and it's booming loud with thunder and lightning is striking all around. And again, we're on the highest peak in the lower 48. So this is a bad place to be. And so we we knew we needed to do something fast. And our original intention was that we wanted to um, finish our trip by leaving the summit of Whitney via the summer route, which is via Trail Crest. But to go that way would go, it would bring us right into the heart of the storm. And it's a long, long ridge that's really exposed. And so that didn't seem like a good idea. And we No, you're thinking talked. like light, lightning and you, wanna, you yeah, don't want like, to be exposed. Yeah, like you have at any moment, right? Um, I can certainly think of things maybe we could have done better. But we discussed our options very quickly. We were both filled with fear. And um, we opted to get off the summit. Uh, quicker, uh, which meant the North Face. And we kind of traversed back and forth along the North Face, and we found several very steep snow gullies that appeared to go all the way down the mountain. So that was the way we decided to descend. And my partner, Ken, went first. He kicked some steps with our little meager boots in the top. And we were not skiing. I always want to clarify that. By now, our skis, um, actually for the whole ascent, and descent were strapped onto the sides of our backpack. And so um, we started down in a self-arrest position. We were hanging from our ice axes and Ken went first. And at some point I saw him out of the corner of my, cause he was kind of off to the side. 
um, and below me, he changed positions into a sitting glissade. And the next thing I knew, there was this blue blur sailing down the mountain. And he disappeared from my sight. And later in time, I was able to go back to Google Earth when it came into existence and figure out, you're like, well, how far did he fall? And this is pretty mind blowing, but he fell 800 feet, 800 feet. By uh, fell, you mean he's, he, cause he sat he down. Slid, so he fell, slid, went over cliffs, the whole, yeah, it was, it was miraculous, but he was out of my view. So, you know, your listeners can probably put themselves in my ski boots. I can't see him. I'm thinking he's dead. Maybe he's alive. And all I could think of is I have to take my time because even though he needs my help, potentially, if I blow it, then obviously I'm of no help to him. And it was a really traumatic couple of hours. I continued to be in the self-arrest position, hanging from my sacks, going ever so slowly down that mountain. And after a long time, literally hours, um, I got to a place where the mountain dropped up so that the angle was a little bit lower and I could actually stand up and look down and I saw Ken to my relief and he was waving his arms back and forth at me. So I knew he was alive. And at that point he left his backpack where he landed and took another route and kind of scrambled up to me. And it also took a long time because I was still pretty high up the mountain to rejoin me and he was going to assist me down. And so we're continuing on. Obviously, we're very happy to be reunited. He was having a little trouble. He complained about pain in his back. He had actually, this is really amazing, after that fall, he only had a couple of hairline fractures in his back and on some abraded skin. Uh, and also he, I think he was suffering from some frostbite because he complained about his feet being numb. And, you know, he took the time to put his feet in my armpits and warm them up so we could continue. And then the storm started getting worse again and the rocks were glazing up and we were wanting to head east. So to give your listeners a little bit of sense of where we were on the north face, I know many of them might be familiar with the Mountaineers route. And from the top of the Mountaineers route over to the top of the Kawar that we started down from the summit, it's probably about an eighth of a mile. And then when we got to the base of the north face we were probably a half a mile from the whitney russell coal okay so uh anyway we were down more in the rockier area of the mountain and slabs were icing up fast and the snow was coming down hard again and we couldn't go east to the degree that we wanted to so we continued to go down and at some point we reached this broken area with this massive cliff um face uh, that was below us. And Ken had fallen over all that terrain. And when he came up to help me, he kind of went around that cliff uh, band and he found a ledge that then led him up to where I was. So he was trying to bring us down as an alternative route to this ledge that would get us back east and again around those cliffs. But the problem we ran into is we were about 20 feet um, on rocky terrain, probably leading into fifth class, that was separating us from that escape ledge. And so Ken said, well, listen, I'm going to down climb this and I'm going to go around the cliffs. I'm going to get my pack and get that robe. I'll come up. I'll lower you over this. We'll get to the ledge and then we can both get down. So I'm that was a so shock that he slid 800 feet and then uh -huh. <laughs> left his pack and then came up to get you. 
you know? It, yeah, it's um, pretty amazing. Um, I mean, the whole thing is pretty amazing. But he, I don't know if he was um, just not thinking of leaving his backpack. Like he left the rope, everything. Maybe he was just in a hurry. I've got to go help my girlfriend. Or if he was days from the fall, probably a combination of those things. Right. Uh, you know, so anyway, he, he came up and he helped me and now I was going down and surprisingly, even though it was low fifth class, that 20 feet, uh, he was climbing it, you know, again, in boots with one inch protrusions in the front for those three pin bindings. <laughs> and he didn't have any trouble with it. And then he disappeared out of my sight and it's getting to be close to twilight now. And I'm thinking, I'm fit. I'm strong. Why don't I just down climb this? Okay. And um, I failed to take into account some really important differences. And that was, he did not have a pack on his back. I had 35 pounds on mine. I was, of course, smaller in um, height. So I didn't have access to those hand and footholds that he had. And they were pretty meager to start with. And I was, of course, exhausted. And I'm sure he was too. But I had had a hours and hours of emotional trauma thinking my partner was dead or all bloodied and this, you know, how we're we going to get out alive kind of thing. So I, um, I remember taking off my gloves and shoving them into my pockets and starting to down climb. And I probably got halfway down that 20 feet and I'm spread eagle on the rock and there are no holds that I can reach. And my leg is shaking, you know, I'm sewing machine leg and, and I'm like, oh my God, I, I can't hang on forever. And really realizing I had made a very terrible decision. And the last thing I remember was my voice. I yelled out, God, don't let me fall. And then the world went black. And the only sensory input I had was sound. So I didn't feel anything. It's like my body shut down but I could hear my body banging on the rocks as I fell. And I fell about 150 to 165 feet. Oh my gosh. Uh -huh. wow. <laughs> and then when down I- rocks, Down rocks, like down rocky cliffs. rocks, yeah, bouncing. Um, yeah, bad. I mean, if I hadn't had my backpack on, I, I definitely wouldn't be here today. And so uh, when I came to, I was obviously very disoriented. I knew something had happened because I was hurting pretty bad. Uh, Ken was- you know, yelling at me, are you okay? And, and he was dragging me across the snow for, I don't know, a quarter of a mile or so. And, you know, I would try and stand up and then I would stumble and that was very challenging. And he dragged me to the base of this buttress where the snow had built up. And it was the, at the base of that buttress, there was one little place you could put a tent and our tent was very small. It's kind of tent you crawled in like a glorified bivy sack with three little metal rings in it, you know, to hold it up. And so he set that up and shoved me in and then went back to get his pack. And um, that, then he joined me, you know, there was blood everywhere. It was a real mess and it was getting dark. And I remember asking him to stay awake all night um, because I wasn't sure that I would live. And I just wanted to him watch my breathing, which he graciously did. I mean, I remember before he put me in the tent and he was getting the equipment together and I looked over at Mount Russell and the sun was setting and the last shafts of light were breaking through the clouds. And I, I looked at that beautiful sight and I will never forget that I burned it into my memory because I thought it would be the last thing I would see. And it was, you know, I remember thinking, wow, this is a beautiful place to die. And I was really aware that this may be the end and more so right before I went to sleep, I... I was really lucid and I had the sense of a 
presence floating above my body. I don't know quite how to describe this, but it was like somebody was going to kiss me, but there was nobody there and it was energetic and dark. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is, this is death. I was in such an exhausted medical shock kind of state that it it wasn't something you could fight. It was just, it's either going to happen or it's not. But that's where I made a very important internal commitment. I said to myself in my mind, if I live until morning, hence the title of my book. So if I live until morning, I'm going to live my greatest dreams. Like get out of my way because if I can make it till morning, I'm going to make it. And that was just my mindset. And then I just let go and I relaxed and went to sleep because it was all out of my control. And I was quite surprised to wake up next morning. I was still alive. And at that point, I had this mantra just arise from deep inside me. And that mantra was, I'm going to live. I'm going to Mm. live. I'm going to live. And I literally, Ashley said that for two straight days, unless I was sleeping or talking to Ken, that's what was going on in my head. I just had to convince myself that I I was going to make it somehow. So here we are. um, We're in our little tent and the storm continues for two more days. We we can't move. We're worried about the snow building up and avalanches coming down, but we're just at the mercy of the mountain at this point. We're really injured. I mean, you, you and Ken don't have a sat phone. You and Ken don't oh, have no. an in-reach device. There's nothing like that There's in no 1982. Cell phone. So, right. right. There's no personal emergency locator beacons. And I mean, and the other part that I hadn't told you is we were seven days ahead of schedule because we skied from sunup to sundown, which we didn't plan on doing, but the skiing was so good. So our family had our itinerary, but there's no reason to worry. So we're really in a bad way. Like we have to get ourselves out or we're not going to get out. So at this point, we are having discussions about what's the best option. And we discussed them all and decided that we needed to stay together. I was severely injured. Um, I'm going to tell you my injuries because it's um, pretty amazing. So I had fractured in my thoracic spine, T12, in my lumbar spine, uh, L1, L2, L5, my sacrum was in three pieces, my tailbone was shattered, I had possible fractures of my pubic bone and right hip, which the doctors never followed up on for whatever reason, I don't know. My sacroiliac joints had been rotated. Um, I had damage to my nerve damage to my left hamstring. I had bladder damage. I couldn't hardly urinate till I got to the hospital five days later. I had a head injury. I had internal bleeding, external bleeding. I got a massive hematoma on my left buttock, which turned into gangrene because I couldn't get to the hospital and a little bit of frostbite on my toes. So I was not in a good way. Oh my gosh. That is a list, Jean. Yes. It's a list I wish I didn't have, but that's my list. And uh, anyway, so we decided, you know, I was too injured to care for myself. Ken couldn't just leave me on the mountain and try to get help. And then there's always the question of how far can you get in a day because we don't have our skis now. There's deep snow, all of that. So we decided as soon as that storm cleared, we would head out and um, we would have to take all of our gear, wear our packs on our injuries because we needed it if it didn't work out to our favor. And as it turned out, um, so we laid there for two days And then it took two more days to actually evacuate. And, you know, we 
got to the Whitney Russell Cole and then down. Wait, but did you, but did you walk, you were walking? I'm walking with these injuries and 35 pounds on my back. With um, a broken back and a, uh-huh. a, a pelvis and butt. Yes. Yes. Because there was no other option. And my thinking at the time was, well, I'm going to die here if I lay on the mountain. I might die trying to get out, but I'm going to at least try to live and I'm going to try to get out and this is going to be hell. And it was, but what other options do I have? I don't. So Mm -hmm. I, I did. And I think really there were two things that kept me going. Um, one is I had a very strong, determined dream of getting to the Himalayas. I so badly wanted to see the biggest mountains in the world. And so when I would collapse into the snow, I would just remember my dream and I'd pick myself up and go again. And that whole process of both laying on the mountain for that many days, that severely injured and then trying to get out, you know, I really relied on my mind. Like, this is the only thing I can control is my mind. I can't control these injuries. I can't control the weather. I can control my mind. And, and that I believe really made a difference for me. And it was hard getting out because we were sinking through um, hip deep snow at times. And I was terrified of taking each step and getting paralyzed with each step, you know, cause I didn't know what my injuries were. Then I just knew they were really, really bad and they were in my back mostly. And also I, would have to traverse ledges. Like we linked these ledges as we got into the North Fork of Lone Pine Creek that were kind of tricky. And then crossing these ice clogged streams that were melting because it was spring. And it was hard. Let me tell you, it was, it was hell. It was five days of hell from the summit till we got to the trailhead. I'm just so amazed that you have so much tenacity to push through such pain and such tremendous injuries. I mean, to have that many back fractures and your, you know, those back injuries and your pelvis and your tailbone, just, I can't even imagine lifting one leg Mm -hmm. in post and waist deep post holing snow. You have to, you you had to walk so far to self-evac. Yeah, it was um, roughly seven miles from our campsite. We were camped at 13,100 feet and I think it was about seven miles to the trailhead and from our campsite, about 3,500 feet of um, descent. It, it, it felt like a long ways. And it did take us two full days. Did you sleep? Um, not, not too much. Um, while we were laid in the tent, uh, I slept as much as I could. But I remember there were rocks under my thermarest and I couldn't get comfortable because I had so many fractures and the most comfortable position was laying on my stomach. But then my bladder was so full. I mean, I got out, I had to push to pee and I, I didn't, I could like urinate maybe, maybe a quarter of a cup a day. It was really painful <laughs> because of this bladder damage. So that was really difficult. And I think I slept maybe some the last night on the trail um, coming down the North Fork of Lone Pine Creek. Uh, so I, I did sleep, but not well. You know, it was a, one of those light, painful sleeps. What kind of partnership did Ken give you in, in this evac time? 
during the VAC time, he was incredibly supportive, a, a real hero. I mean, I appreciated that he came up the mountain to look for me and to help me down as best as we could. And we definitely agreed to stay together. And one of the more heroic things I remember him doing is when we left Iceberg Lake, you descend into this glacial valley. In the summer, it's filled with talus and rubble. Um, but that was filled with just deep, deep snow. And I was having a real hard time with that. And then just past that, there's a slope that angles down. It goes kind of towards um, one of the upper Boy Scout Lake area, but not to the lake itself. And it was really steep. And at that point, we were crawling on our hands and knees. And he got this idea. And that was to take my backpack because he had his own backpack that had 40 or 45 pounds in it. And he roped our two backpacks together. And then he made, he took the rope and put it around his waist like a sled. And he dragged that for a bit so that I sank like six inches into the snow for a while instead of, you know, feet and feet. And um, that was really great. And I mean, he was very, very helpful on the way down. And the last I don't know if it was last mile or half mile. I was staggering down the trail and collapsing. It was now free of snow. And I was, I mean, I looked like I was drunk. <laughs> of course I wasn't. But uh, anyway, he finally just laid me down and he ran to the trailhead, dropped his pack, came back, grabbed my pack. And, and also I think he carried me and my pack down that last mile or half mile or so, um, which I really appreciate um, because I, I'm not sure how much further I could have walked. I was pretty close to death when I got to the trailhead. And then you, and you get to the truck now and then does he, do you go straight to the hospital or what happened when you get <laughs> oh, to the vehicle? Okay. So this is a sad story. So we actually didn't have a vehicle waiting for us because when we, we were living in San Diego at the time and we um, basically flew to Fresno and took uh, the bus from Fresno to Yosemite Valley. And then we were going to, I'm not sure what we're going to do to get out. I don't remember at that time, but we didn't have a vehicle waiting for us. We were probably going to catch a bus. But in 1982, there weren't a lot of people in the spring going up to the Whitney Portal Trailhead like there is today. And anyway, what happened was Ken heard a vehicle come into the parking lot and he flagged them down. And this is kind of shocking, but they wouldn't take us to the hospital, which is Did they see you? Well, they saw Ken. I was um, laying off to the side, but we looked like death warmed over. I mean, we hadn't showered in a, a month, right? So we looked horrible. And um, Ken was pretty shocky, and he described me, and they, they just didn't want to do that. I, I don't know why. But then the next car that came in was, and if your listeners can help me find this man, I would be forever grateful. There was this man um, from Utah and he was on his way. Well, he'd moved to California. So they were in the moving process. They all had their car, a small car filled with their family possessions. He had a wife with him and a baby literally. And he came over to me and I remember, you know, I'm covered with blood and he, he just strokes my head and he's like, it's going to be okay. And he scooped me up in his arms and took me to his car. They had unloaded the car. He left his wife and baby behind and took us to the Lone Pine Hospital. And we lost his contact info. And I am forever grateful to that man. Oh my gosh. What a selfless man. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. shame on that first vehicle. Yeah. Shame on them. You know, how could they do that? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, that man is my hero, <laughs> the unsung hero. 
Okay, well, if there's a man that was at the Whitney Portal Trailhead in 1982 in the springtime, please reach out to Gene. Yes. <laughs> and he would remember me. I'm certainly oh, that. my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So what what were the learnings in this incident then? How, what, what do you want to tell the listeners to don't do this? Or what do you want the takeaways to be? Yeah, well, you know, I have a lot of things I've learned from this. And of course, I've had a lot of time to reflect on it. And I do want to mention, you know, that uh, when we have an accident like that, with there's the physical aspect of healing, and there's the emotional trauma. And I think many times, it's easy to think, well, I'll heal my bones and I'll just get on with it. But you no. know, you are never, ever the same uh, physically or emotionally, especially when you've come that close to death and had such a difficult time evacuating. And so I learned lessons that were both, both about mountaineering and from that specific accidents, but I feel like I also learned a lot of life lessons as well. But when I think about more the mountaineering accident. Um, specifically, one thing that I haven't talked about that I learned from is when I was about halfway into skiing the Muir Trail or less, um, Ken and I were climbing up Silver Pass and out of nowhere, I had this gut feeling, really deep gut feeling that something bad was going to happen on this trip. And I couldn't identify, well, where is that going to be? And what's that going to look like? And I just had this feeling that was really strong. And I remember thinking, do I speak up? And I had this internal conversation with myself. Well, I'm kind of a intuitive right brain person. And Ken was very logical left brain. And we had spent literally years training and planning for this ski trip. And I was also 22 at the time. I was very young. And I thought, well, if I just say, hey, let's abandon the ski trip, I got this feeling. And that's all it is. I, I just had the sense that maybe he would laugh at me. So I just kind of quashed that. So I guess I would share with your listeners that if you have a gut feeling or something's just not going right, do speak up, do talk about it. And you know, I, I had a great time skiing the Muir Trail, but if I had listened to that, uh, the heartache, the chronic pain, the things I could have not had to deal with um, would have been, you know, not there. And, and I wished I had listened to that. So listen to your gut when something's not right and talk about it. And, and I guess the moral of that is it's better to have a lifetime full of wonderful adventures than one really bad adventures <laughs> that it pays um, some negative things ahead for you in your life and then kind of messes up your other adventures. So that would be an important <laughs> lesson. Uh, second, I guess I would share the importance of being self-reliant. And yeah. while Ken and I were self-reliant, um, I think it's always good for climbers and outdoor enthusiasts to really have a plan B and be ready to evacuate themselves, to not rely on outside search and rescue agencies, or even that there might be other people around. And while the trails are certainly more popular today and the climbing routes as well, it may be that day where people aren't around that can help you. And where are you getting your information from too? You know, not relying on tech so much. I, I think we should all use the tech of our times. There's great tools out there today, the GPS units and all the apps on our phones and 
a personal emergency locator devices. I mean, I would have paid $30,000 for that, let me tell you. Um, I wanted so bad to be evacuated, but that wasn't an option. Um, somebody was going to come to get me. So I think the lesson learned is, you know, always still have a paper map and a compass and a good guidebook, you know, would be really, really helpful. Uh, we had those things and they served us well. And of course, uh, adopting a positive mindset is going to be helpful and trying to really think things through. Another lesson I learned specifically from this incident is I think as climbers and mountaineers, we're always assessing conditions around us. We're looking at the changing weather, the changing conditions on the route, uh, all of those things, the terrain is changing and the environment. But I think stopping to think about our partners and ourselves in relation to each other. And while we may be on a certain even keel ground with our skill set in the morning, that may have actually changed a few hours later because one person is exhausted or injured or has something going on. And in my case, um, I didn't really think about what was different about Ken down climbing uh, that fateful section for me than what my situation was. And if I had really thought about that, it would have made a difference. I think many of us, when we go outside, we do think about a plan B, mm-hmm. but I think we, when we're assessing the conditions and asking ourselves, well, what are the risks of this route versus that, or this decision and, and versus the other options and what are the gains of going that way? It's more of an intellectual exercise. And I think if I had asked myself, not intellectually, but more emotionally, well, what if this choice resulted in being paralyzed or resulted in chronic pain or resulted in my death or the death of my partner? Would I choose differently? And I can tell you that I would have chosen differently. Like really seeing it through, like seeing those, the potential through in my, in your mind instead of, oh, well, what if I get hurt? But really seeing, oh, well, what if I am paralyzed? What if this paralyzes me? Or what if Uh I'm not wearing my helmet? And what if I have a fracture in my skull? And I, you know, Uh really seeing that, the, that the possibilities through. Right. And and looking at it, fast forwarding as decades go by in your life, you know, I'm in my early 60s now, and that was in my early 20s. And so I have a whole different perspective that, of course, only comes with time. Uh, but nevertheless, I have learned from that. And, you know, I want more adventures, too. And, and I think, you know, I have some... Um, former interns that I still kind of mentor more with life. I'm always egging them on to go on for their adventures, but at the same time, you know, bringing that caution flag up of safety that, Hey, it's about having a lifetime of wonderful adventures outside, wonderful climbs, whatever you're doing. And it's not about that one trip at all costs because it's not worth it. It's you want to enjoy so much more. So I think, and then the last kind of mountaineering lesson um, specific to this was that, One of the things Ken and I did not discuss when we were on the summit, obviously we had to make a very fast decision due to the nature of the lightning, is we didn't talk about going back the way we came down the west face and back down to Crabtree Meadows. Because again, we were on the last day of our trip. We wanted to exit toward Whitney Portal. And while there may have been some serious risks with that, because we would have been on the summit, you know, a little longer Uh, that might have been a good choice. So sometimes going back the way you came, even if it extends your outing, because that's familiar territory, that's where people might look for you, could be a good choice. Mm -hmm. What about emotional learnings? (laughs) I had a lot of those, let me tell you, Um, because I've had a lot of pain and a lot of opportunity to contemplate that. I I learned a lot in that regard. Um, I really learned on 
Matt Whitney, how our mind is everything. Um, it helped me to get out alive. And um, I've since then become a meditator. And I really believe in the power of our mind just to help us with our everyday lives and really tend to it. So that's important to me. And I've learned just life is short. It's really short. It's really precious. And so I believe in kind of getting the most out of life, but again, kind of always tempering it with a little bit of safety. And so I know when I wrote my book, my intention, and I actually wrote it to heal myself. I had a trauma therapist that said, you need to write this down. I'm like, okay, I'm desperate. I will want to heal on every level. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. So I did. But then in terms of sending it out to the world, my intention was that I wanted to remind people life is short. So please live your dreams, but live them smart, you know, so that you don't get injured. And at the same time, I realized that all human beings, whether we're climbers or not, we all have our own traumas, uh, physical and or emotional, and or our own Mount Whitney, so to speak. And I wanted to give people the courage to look inward and actually overcome and heal those because um, life is too short to be carrying that burden. So I certainly learned that. And one thing I haven't shared with you is... Um, after I actually, when I was writing my book, it wasn't finished yet. I started getting really curious about Mount Whitney. And when I left that mountain, you know, I was like, I'm leaving this. I don't ever want to see this mountain again, kind of thing, <laughs> even though I love the Sierras. Um, and I decided maybe I should go back. And I started getting on Google Earth because it was, you know, here now. And I would look over the north face of the mountain and I was learning to use Google Earth. So I would slide on my computer, you know, all of a sudden I'd be falling over the mountain again and be like, ah! You know, and that was a little traumatizing. <laughs> but I, I got curious about the mountain and I wanted to see if my skis were still there because I really loved my skis. And um, anyway, I trained and I was getting stronger. I've kind of had an up and down life of chronic pain and various strengths and activities. Sometimes I'm very active, sometimes I'm not. And anyway, so um, my present partner, Paul, and I and our friend Jonathan went back to the north face of Whitney. I was able to take them right in the summertime to where we had camped. And I found not my skis, but I found Ken's ski. And I found the heel of my ski boot that had come off during my fall in a field of talus, if you can imagine this. And anyway, that was a very cathartic moment for me. I bawled my brains out. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm looking at the cliffs. For you. Fell. I'm standing on what I call death's campsite. And there's the ski and the heel of my boot and everything's just coming together. But what I learned besides just I was processing it right there is I stood there and realized I had never forgiven myself for that mistake. You know, I'd always kind of like, oh, you made this stupid mistake. Look at what it's cost you your whole life. And I bawled and I realized, hey, we all make mistakes. I need to forgive myself. And that was an important emotional thing that I learned. And, and of course, my life has changed directions a lot because of that um, fall. And Mount Whitney has informed my entire life because I've become so close to death at that point in time. And I really learned that... Um, you know, you have to be open to new directions in life because mountaineering accidents can close some doors and open others. And so that's been good too. So how long, Jean, did it take you to recover? <laughs> well, I kind of had this up and down recovery. So it's really um, odd. So um, I was young and I was really strong and really fit. And, and of course I had that really determined mind, right? Like I'm getting back at this. And I was, I was in bed for four solid months after my fall 
so long haul there, multiple hospitals, things of that nature. And then I, I didn't get the benefit of much physical therapy. And I also didn't get the benefit of a lot of modern treatment. You know, today they would fly you straight from Lone Pine to Los Angeles. I was in the Lone Pine Hospital for nine days. And I don't know if you've been to that hospital, but it's primarily a geriatrics unit um, with a couple of um, beds for acute patients. And so um, I, I may, you know, I, I got care the best they were able to offer, but I often wonder how I could have benefited from more advanced care at larger facilities. But at any rate, um, I was hiking and skiing the next summer. I, Ken and I did several wow. more trans ski trips. I was determined. I was wanting to get to the Himalayas, remember, and I did, and eventually be, became a trekking guide there. So I was active for a number of years. And um, then around 1990, I started having a lot of chronic pain and issues. It's like, it just came back, like out of nowhere. And then it was off and on uh, where I was able to do stuff. I eventually gave up climbing. Ken was a really hardcore climber, so we never went out and did easy things. And that kind of pushed me emotionally and physically. I was starting to have more pain. So I finally gave that up. It kind of led to our the relationship dissolving over 20 years, we did get married and then eventually got divorced. And he also didn't want me to talk about the accident. So I think that kept me from healing. Like friends I knew didn't even know I had, they knew I skied the John Muir Trail, but they didn't know why I had all this back pain. Anyway, so I kind of did better and then I did worse. And in 2007, I was, I was literally with a walker and I could barely walk 10 feet and I was holed up in my bed for a couple of months. And, um, Eventually, I had a friend, um, my friend Paul came to help me and get me more physical therapy. And, and oddly, the interesting thing is I, I got some good therapy and rolfing and chiropractors and things here. But the best medical treatment I got was in Nepal. <laughs> so um, my friend Paul knew of a phenomenal physician there. And I flew to Kathmandu for two months. And that really made a difference. So I still have to stretch every day. I still have to really take care of my body. I am able to hike, but I can't carry heavy loads anymore. So I work with what I have. Why didn't Ken want you to talk about the accident? I don't know, to be honest, because he wouldn't talk about it. And he didn't want to talk about it with me. I have to guess. So I am speculating. I'm, I'm guessing it's some of that um, pride Mountaineers might have, you know, not wanting to admit that something went terribly wrong or maybe just being embarrassed uh, or maybe just if we didn't have to acknowledge it, it didn't exist. I'm not really sure. But it was a growing issue with us. And I do think, I guess that would be one of the lessons learned emotionally is if we have traumas, we need to talk about them. We need to let them out of the closet. We need to air them out. We need to revisit them in a healthy way so that we can actually process them and get support from others. I can't tell you how much I agree with that sentiment. I mean, that's the whole point of the show is it's healing, you know, and, and, and you're giving you, it's totally healing and you're giving everybody else that listens to the show, you know, you're giving them a gift. You're, you're doing a service by ideally helping to minimize future incidents by sharing your story. And, but some, yeah, some people just aren't ready to share. Right. And we all have our own processing, but I, I do want to help your listeners be safe because like I said, have a lifetime of wonderful adventures, but it's about, you know, making good choices and maybe giving up some adventures that aren't going right before they go bad so that you can come back again and again. 
Um, I think a lot of times, you know, when we have pain, it wants, it wants to be acknowledged, whether that's emotional or physical, right? We try to kind of push it away, like, okay, it'll just go away, right? But, but it doesn't go away. And the more we try to um, suppress things, the more they just keep popping up because they, they want to be heard and um, they want to be free. And so I think I would share that with your listeners. And I wished I could have really talked to Kim about that uh, as an important part of healing. And, and also to realize that healing is on multiple levels. It's not just the, the physical aspect of healing. It is the emotional aspect and the trauma aspect and uh, however we want to deal with it. So I, I think that writing it down, my story really helped me. I've certainly been criticized for that by some, but I, I think writing it down and processing it and then revisiting those places. I mean, that is traumatic in some ways, but for me, it was incredible to go back to Matt Whitney and just, it was like facing my enemy one-on-one, right? You know, because Whitney had been my enemy of my life and here I am looking at, and I'm able to acknowledge, well, you're really a beautiful mountain. You are stunning. And this is what happened here. And and just um, acknowledging that I think is good. And then I think advising listeners wanting to heal to seek a lot of different modalities for healing, you know, whether that's counseling or a trauma therapist or talking with friends or going out. Or going to Nepal. <laughs> going to Nepal. I mean, really, I, and that's different for everybody. I know I had um, one woman here in Esses Park who was dealing with um, chronic pain from a car accident and a lifetime of pain. And she invited me over to her house and wanted to talk and and she had been really addicted to opioids um, as painkillers, which by the way, I was too, as another thing I had to get over. And we talked and for her, she was a painter. And I said, you need to paint your way through this pain and paint your way through the trauma. And she'd put away all those paintbrushes. And I'm like, no, dig that out. That's what's healing for you. And so I think kind of tapping into the things that make us feel good and the things that make us feel whole again, because when we have an accent like that, it's literally like pieces of us were taken away and we need to find a way to rebuild our self-esteem and, and feel good about ourselves again and whatever that's going to be. And I, I know that's individual for everybody, but if they can soul search to figure out what makes their heart sing and, and pursue that is, is very healthy. Mm, that's beautiful. Uh, do you have a GPS now, Jean? Um, my partner does. We usually go out together and he, uh, he, he still has a spot device. So we talked about that because sometimes he goes out by himself. And so, yes, we have those things. And like I said, I would have paid $30,000 for that. So my advice to people is get those things. Don't rely on them, but get them because you may, the goal is never to use those things, never to need them. But if you need them, they're worth more money than anything else when you're really, you know, you're bleeding on the mountain and you think you're going to die. Okay. Well, tell me one more time what the name of your book is. Sure. It's If I Live Until Morning, A True Story of Adventure, Tragedy, and Transformation. So I should say it's a memoir because I know a lot of, um, adventure seekers they only want the the gory story of the climb and the survival and all of that but that's actually only about a third of the book because I do dive into the what happened later how did this affect me because you know there's there's always several layers of a story and so I wanted to reveal the whole story of how that had affected me as a person so it's really a memoir that includes that story based on that and where can people purchase the book uh, the best place is probably Amazon is the easiest place. I mean, it's out there in some other bookstores and things, but they can certainly find it. And it's an audio book now. It's also been translated into Vietnamese. Very cool. Do you have yeah. a website? 
I do. It's jeanmuntrath, all one word, dot com. Okay. And just uh, for the listeners, you can find her website in the show notes uh, to link to go check out her website. And Jean, thank you so much for spending this time with me on the phone to tell us about your insane story from your epic on Mount Whitney. <laughs> thank you for letting me share it. And uh, thank you again for keeping climbers safe so that I can get the most out of their lives. I really appreciate what you do. Thank you. Thanks to Jean for being on the show. Thank you to Evan Phillips at Podpeak for creating my awesome new theme music. And thank you to Rocky Talkie, Desert Mountain Medicine, and the American Alpine Club for believing in what I'm doing. Introducing Membership 2.0 from the American Alpine Club. Climbing is inherently risky, but with the enhanced rescue benefits of Membership 2.0, you can tie in a little easier knowing the American Alpine Club is on belay. Say you're climbing and the situation goes south. The newly enhanced rescue and medical expense coverage of Membership 2.0 will get you back to the trailhead, to the nearest hospital, and then pay your insurance deductible or medical expenses once you're there. But what if you were unable to phone in the accident yourself and it's not the AAC who organizes the rescue? They've also created a reimbursement request process to ensure that you're not left holding the bill. Learn more at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Desert Mountain Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. DMM offers all women's courses through the Women's Wild Med program. Wilderness medicine courses for women, taught by women. DMM welcomes all women and girls, transgender and cisgender, as well as non-binary people who identify with the women's community to join the hybrid woofer in July in beautiful Leadville, Colorado. For a 10% discount on this course, use code SHARP women. Visit DesertMountainMedicine.com today. Are you ready? Learn more about The Sharp End Podcast at www.TheSharpBendPodcast.com. Want to show your love? Follow The Sharp End Podcast on Instagram, leave a review on iTunes, or become a Patreon subscriber. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.